This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. All right, so we have kind of a Bible line format tonight, and if uh, you didn't submit a question yet, uh, Peter is right here in the uh, aisle. Just uh, hand them to Peter, and you can bring them up here, Peter, whatever you have, whatever we have so far. And uh, we're going to go ahead. Walter is helping us tonight. He's our new ministry project manager, and we're excited about that. And let me just say, um, sometimes when people are meeting me in the hallway on Sunday morning, and I hate it after the first service because many times I just have enough time to wet my throat and then go up and prepare for a baptism. So don't always have a chance to greet people, but sometimes folks come up and they'll ask some like bizarre question. You know, Pastor Carl and uh, Daniel's beast with ten toes. Can you tell me what the eighth toe is or whatever? And there's this whole line of visitors behind many people I've never met even once. And um, and you have to know too that about half of our visitors who come typically are not saved. And that's a great problem to have. That's a problem every pastor would wish for. And that's true because of you as you reach out to people in the community. But we have a format where you can ask questions. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, there's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Brogy a question. Now, will I type an answer to you? Probably not. I just literally do not type that fast to be able to do it. Now, I have secretaries who can type 100 words a minute, and I think I do about 50 words a minute. Uh, but with that said, I do answer some questions of urgency, especially through missionaries, through pastors, through like disasters that people are facing. But what I typically do is I go into the Bible line on Tuesdays at 11 o'clock, and Rick just pulls up questions and starts shooting them at me. And I can type a whole lot faster than I can speak, about 750 words a minute with gusts up to 1,000 words. And so uh, that's just a good format. And we always try to give, too, some priority to our members uh, because it's very important to me that your questions are being answered. Walter, what do we have first tonight? All right, our first question comes from Christopher out of Raleigh, North Carolina. He says, hi, Dr. Brogy. I have been listening to your sermons online for years now and very much appreciate your preaching and teaching. Here is my question. If there is a pre-tribulation rapture and God's true church is, is to be spared by the judgments we read about in Revelation, wouldn't it be unfair for a lack of better word, quote unquote, for those who come to faith after the rapture to have to face such horrors? After all, wouldn't they have gone into the tribulation period simply because they had not heard the gospel before and or hadn't they had the chance to accept Christ? Thank you in advance for answering this question. Okay, I think I caught that question. We just got the monitors turned up. Otherwise, it's like a Chinese movie up here. Um, let me just say, first of all, of course, God is never, ever unfair. 
God is a just God. And a passage that comes to mind is Romans chapter 9. Uh, why don't you turn there for a moment, Romans chapter 9. We'll be looking at some passages together, and uh, people don't always have that luxury on the Bible line. They're in their car, they're driving down the road. And, and by the way, if you do submit a question on the Bible line, you don't have to be listening to it live. What happens is when your question is answered, if you submitted one tonight, there's probably a chance it won't get answered for four or five weeks just because we're logged back so far. And they come in from all over the country. But what they'll do is they'll email you and say, your question was answered today, and you'll have a link. And when you click on the link, it will show you all the questions that were answered on that day. And you can say, oh, mine's like the fourth one down. So you don't even have to listen to the hour-long Bible line. You can just kind of scan through until you get to your question. Romans 9, 10, and 11, if you remember, uh, deal with the nation of Israel in one word. In 9, he deals with Israel's election. He's not dealing with personal election. He's dealing with how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world. And of course, it's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. It's a continuation that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And to prove that, among other things, is he illustrates with Israel. God repeatedly said he loved Israel with an everlasting love. Well, if you've loved them with a forever love, it seems like you abandoned them. So 9, he shows how he elected Israel. In chapter 10, he shows Israel's rejection of God's favor over them. And then in 11, their future restoration. But here in chapter 9, in verse 14, having chosen, um, and he goes through this process, you know, two men or two boys are in a womb, and he chooses one over the other. And God just sovereignly does that. He, he has to create a nation and a flow of people so that ultimately you could identify who the true Messiah was. And somebody might say, well, that just seems unfair that you'd choose this one over another. And he asks in verse 14, what then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. It's one of the strongest adversities in all the New Testament. Meganoida, may it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. It's hard to capture in English, I suppose. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So there is no injustice with God. Do you remember in that encounter with uh, Abraham and he's praying over Sodom and he's pleading with God. Uh, obviously his nephew is there and some of his family and, and he creates these different numbers. God, if there's 10 righteous men, will you, will you spare the city? And of course there weren't even 10. But in the process he asks a rhetorical question and he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And of course the answer is yes. So while we may not always understand God's justice. It does not in any way or shape or form change who he is. So our understanding may be different from his understanding. And that's where the study of scripture, you want to bring your mind in sync with God's mind. We just came through Christmas and you know, we read one Sunday the passage where Gabriel appeared to Mary and, and he said, you know, greetings favored one among the Lord. That was a favor, a, a blessing that God set on that woman out of all the Jewish women that she would carry the Messiah. 
Then 40 days later, when she comes in the temple to dedicate Jesus, and Simeon is there, and God had promised that he would see the Messiah before he died, and he told her, a sword will pierce your soul. This precious little baby that you've brought today is going to bring real pain. So there's favor, but there's pain with the favor. Of course, her entire life, she lived with mockery. Even in John 8, when Jesus is there in the temple, that age-old rumor that Mary was less than faithful to the Lord, and we're not born of porneia, we're not born of fornication like you are, Jesus. That was a rumor that plagued her her entire life, like she was some immoral prostitute. Not to mention, she experienced the piercing of the soul when she saw the Lord Jesus, one of the women that were there during the crucifixion. So the question here in reference to tribulation saints, it may seem like, oh, well, you know, um, they had opportunity. Why is it that, you know, they're going through all this suffering and uh, they didn't have a chance to hear the gospel? Well, listen, God is wise, he is just, and he knows all the ins and outs, and we don't know all the ins and outs. Maybe many of the tribulation saints had some revelation that they didn't respond to. We know all men have some revelation through creation and conscience. No one can say there's no God. God's fingerprints are over all that he made. It's written into man's spiritual DNA. You know the difference between right and wrong because the law of God's been written in your heart. And maybe some of them, while they did not, like in 2 Thessalonians 2, reject the plain plan of salvation because those folks, Paul said, who love sin more than they choose the gospel will experience a diluting influence that they may not believe what is false. But who knows, maybe some of these could have responded. I mean, how do we deal with the question of the unevangelized? We have a very clear answer that God gives light to all men and light responded to brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. So no one can say, well, God is unfair for sending someone to hell for having never believed in a savior whose name he's ever heard because God promises that light responded to brings more light. And who's not to say also that some of these tribulation saints responded to the light they had, and God preserved them through the tribulation so that they could ultimately hear the gospel. A passage that comes to mind is Revelation chapter 6. Why don't you turn there for a second? Revelation chapter 6. And of course, this is a scene of believers who have been won to Jesus after the rapture of the church. How is that going to happen? Well, We're told in Revelation 7 of 144,000 Jewish witnesses who are like missionaries and they cover the planet. We learn that also in the first half of the tribulation period, there are two witnesses who preach from the Temple Mount. There's also even an angel, first time in all of human history that God uses an angel to preach the gospel. Uh, But there's this vast number that no one can count. But here in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. Why? Because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little 
while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed. So here they are. They're not second-class citizens. They're actually right at the throne of God with holy angels that have just been mentioned. So we may think it's unfair, but we need to look at the broader picture of things. This may, among other things, be an expression of God's long-suffering, God's patience, wanting to get the gospel out, in fueling some of the deficiencies, maybe that the body of Christ, because we've sat on our hands, not to mention, who's to say that it's unfair to suffer? Do you remember in Acts 5, the Sanhedrin, after they had beaten up on the apostles and they left rejoicing, why? Because they had an opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. And of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you, when men persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me, rejoice. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. And he reminded us that they treated the prophets of old in the exact same way. So we may measure things in a way that's different from the way God measures it, and uh, we need to kind of put those in sync. Do you have some more questions that our people? I do. Uh, So our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from someone here in the congregation. They ask, when the trumpet sounds in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, will the whole world hear it or just, the, or just those who are being raptured? It's a good question. We're not told. So if I dogmatically answer that, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trump of the archangel. Um, if I answered it dogmatically, I would be guilty of eisegesis because it doesn't tell us if the only people who are hearing the trumpet are the dead in Christ and the saints of God on earth. Because remember, this is like super fast. People do not have an opportunity to get right at the rapture. Oh, here comes Jesus. There's the trumpet. Jesus, save me. No, it happens, the scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. That's like super fast. That's faster than you can blink your eye and Theologues try to measure the time of a twinkling of an eye, but it's super fast, faster than the speed of light. And that's how fast the church will be snatched up and taken out of the way. So I doubt they hear it, Um, unlike the Trump at the second coming, because he comes first for his church. We meet him in the air. We're suddenly gone. But at the second coming, it's a visible return, as Daniel affirms, as... Uh, The revelation affirms, and every eye will see him. A very different kind of return, a very public return, and I suspect they will hear that trumpet. All right, let's go to another online question. We're like so backed up on online questions, and um, I want to be fair to the people who submit them. So go ahead. We'll play a little catch-up tonight, I hope. A woman from uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina, she writes... I am a Christian, I am married and now getting divorced. The covenant is broken. I have asked God to forgive me for my infidelity. If I continue to see my affair partner, am I still sinning? At what point does my affair relationship become a healthy relationship? I want to do what is right. Let's turn to Ephesians for a second, the fifth chapter, and let me see if I can respond to her question if I understood it correctly. And I'm glad she asked it because what she is saying in the question is she has less than a biblical sense of morality. Uh, Let me just say first, 
don't give up on your marriage. It's not over yet. There may be divorce papers that have been served to this lady, but that doesn't mean it's over. And you never want to loosely give up on something when God says in Malachi 2.16, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. God hates divorce. And he hates it as Malachi describes it because it pulls apart a living bond. People who in our church who've been down the road of divorce have told me the incredible pain that they experienced in the process. Many sometimes divorced against their own will. They didn't even want a divorce. And God hates too, according to Malachi chapter 2, the damage that it does to the children. But it's really not over until someone remarries, according to Deuteronomy 24. If you remember in that section of Scripture, somebody might say, well, that's just in reference to the law, but he creates this scenario. A man gets married, he divorces his wife, marries a second woman, divorces her, and now wants to go back to the first woman. And God said to go back to the first wife, Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, is an abomination. And I can promise you, every single time in the Old Testament law where God calls something an abomination, it's still an abomination today. There are many things that God mentions in the law that he never mentions in the New Testament. Um, it's not right to marry your sister. God never says that in the New Testament, but he says it in his law. God never mentions physical interaction with animals in a sexual way. But it's wrong, it's evil. And God only has to say it once for it to be true. So it's really not over until someone remarries. Well, we've got a finalized divorce, you may, but it's not over yet. There's still a possibility for reconciliation as long as no one has remarried. And it's a thrill of my heart when on rare occasions I either hear or get to marry two people back to one another. But I think there's some other issues that you're dealing with, and you need to ask yourself, are you genuinely a Christian? Would you read the question again about her infidelity? I just want to make sure I heard it right. She says, I am married and now getting divorced. The covenant is broken. I have asked God to to forgive me for my infidelity. If I continue to see my affair partner, am I still sinning? And at what point does my affair relationship become a healthy one? So if by when you say in in the Bible line, they'll bring it up on a screen so I can see the question visually when Rick calls out it. I don't have that screen with me. But if when you say, okay, the relationship is over with my husband, and is it wrong for me to be involved in this relationship with this man? If by that you mean sexually, then the answer is absolutely yes. But again, people today have a warped sense of morality. And here in Ephesians 5, and this is a passage that came to mind, in verse 5 he says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And you know the nature of deception. The nature of deception is that people are deceived, do not know they are deceived. 
So don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Don't let Andy Stanley and the things that have come out in the last two weeks over his view of homosexuality buffalo you. I suspected it, but now he's come out and he's given credence in many forms and fashions over this lifestyle. So don't let anyone deceive you, even if they have a title and they say, I'm a pastor, and they are over some mega church. The scripture ultimately is our final authority. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So if by, in your thinking, you think, well, this marriage is over, can I now live with this guy and sanction it? The answer is no, it's fornication. It's adultery. And in Galatians chapter 5, of course, he admonishes us to walk by the Spirit. I'm reading 5.16, that you might not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's the book right before Ephesians, if you're in Ephesians. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. Why? So that you may not do the things that you please. And so when a Christian, can a Christian fall into adultery, fornication? Absolutely. A Christian could fall into homosexuality. A Christian could rob a bank. A Christian could pull a trigger and murder someone. And if we don't think we have the potential to do something like that, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And if we think we've reached a point in our spirituality where we couldn't do something, then we're tempting the devil to tempt us. But is there a difference between a believer and an unbeliever in sin? Absolutely. Number one, the believer has this battle within that the unbeliever does not. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, they're in opposition to one another. The unbeliever doesn't feel that pull, except initially with his conscience. And the more he sins, the more seared, the more calloused. He can even develop what the Bible calls an evil conscience, where you call good evil and evil good. So it doesn't bother him, but the believer who's indwelt by the Spirit of God, there's a war within. And while there's pleasure in sin for a moment, it doesn't last long. So a Christian in sin is the most miserable person. And number two, if a person is saved, they come under the discipline of God. And if someone can live in adultery or fornication or shack up with someone or drink and use drugs or do all these things and there's no consequence, well, we've just deceived ourselves. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us, quoting Proverbs. So he goes on and then he says, now the deeds of the flesh, verse 19, are evident. This is what the sinful nature produces. And he gives this list, immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's what this woman from Hilton Head is really writing about. And he goes on and he says, just as I forewarned you, verse 21, as I forewarned you before, that those who practice such things, there's the key word, practice. Those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So can a Christian commit any kind of sin? Yes, that's why the admonition walked by the Spirit that we might not carry out the desire of the flesh because we have that capacity. Can a Christian do this as a way of life? The person who does it as a way of life has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In fact, he'll say in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh in regards to its passions and desires. In other words, the direction in their life is different. 
we could read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It would be a similar passage. So one I would say to this woman who writes from Hilton Head, one, you want to make sure you're saved. You want to make sure you're saved. And number two, the fact that you're, you know, still have a possibility for reconciliation, that's what you should be doing. And you should go to your husband because while you may be given some papers from some judge who says, marriage canceled, God still has a marriage contract up in heaven, and he says, it ain't canceled. And you should go to your husband and ask for his forgiveness. It sounds to me from the way the question was positive that you played the role of an adultery. And by the way, do you think too, if you married this man, that things are gonna be better? He cheated on another man's wife, and for all I know, he's cheating on his own wife. I don't know all the dynamics of this particular sin, but do you think marrying him all of a sudden is gonna give him moral purity and commitment so that he's gonna be faithful to you until death does you part? That's why while about 50% of first marriages end in divorce, 70% of second marriages end in divorce in this country. So you should do everything to go and make yourself right with your former husband, even to ask for his forgiveness, even if he doesn't take you back. Of course, Proverbs, what, 16 says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even potentially his enemies to be at right with him. It's a general principle. Sometimes when someone goes with brokenness, what you think is a messed up marriage could potentially be restored. And that's what you would hope. All right, let's go to another question. All right, the next question comes from Casey out of Mount Shasta, California. He says, I am halfway through your course on finances God's way and a quarter of the way through the book you recommended. My question today is, how would you answer someone really criticizing Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac? This person is saying that they cannot follow a God who would ask a father to do that. I tried explaining that this was a typology of Christ's sacrifice being foreshadowed and that it was, it was a one-time thing that God had asked of any human for that specific reason. But my answer just did not penetrate. Wondering if you have any advice on how I can handle this situation. Well, let's look at two passages. First, let's be crystal clear that child sacrifice is evil. Turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 20 for a second. If you have a Bible, go to Leviticus chapter 20. And then we'll go to the text in question that she is asking about. Leviticus chapter 20, God spells it out here. Look at verse, um, verse 2. You shall also say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among the people both him and those who play the harlot after him by, by playing the harlot of Molech. Molech, if you remember, is one of the Canaanite gods. And uh, they have actually, archaeology has discovered 
some remnants have worshipped a Molech, and it's basically a, a statue with open arms like this, where you'd take your little infant and offer him in fire, through the fire, to this pagan god. And it was just an abomination to the living God that such a thing could happen. God had absolutely zero tolerance for the worship of Molech. And if you remember in 1 Kings, God warned uh, Solomon not to let his heart get carried away by foreign women. Why? Because in the process, his heart would be carried away from the living God. And so what were they doing on the east side of the temple, the east side of the temple. The temple's right in front of us where the sound booth is. The east side is the Mount of Olives. There's the Kidron Valley, and on, off to the left on the Mount of Olives is the section where Solomon worshipped his women, Molech. God hated it. In fact, that was part of the reason for the kingdom splitting. And God said, the only reason I'm not going to split the kingdom while you're alive is for the sake of my father, David. But when you're dead under your son, it's going to split in two. And when you read the prophet Jeremiah, one of the reasons for the deportation to Babylon where God uses this vicious people. I mean, the Babylonians were vicious. You wouldn't want them to come into your neighborhood. The cruelty was beyond belief, and we know that from Babylonian cuneiform and the things they bragged about and wrote about. And they were carried away into judgment because, among other things, they got caught up in the worship of Molech and King Manasseh and King Ahaz and others. So the question posited, if God hates the sacrifice of little children, by the, by the way, we do the same thing in America, do we not? That when I first came here, Anthony, I met a man, and he told me down on the island, they would actually, there was some worship of the evil one, and they would actually dedicate newborn babies to Satan and kill them and sacrifice them. I don't know that that goes on anymore. I sure hope it doesn't. But we do it in abortion clinics all across America, and we worship the God of convenience. I'm counseling a young lady right now and just praying earnestly that she'll keep her baby because Mr. Lover wants her to get an abortion. She's just found Christ and his forgiveness, but she's under pressure. Why? Because it's inconvenient. This will mess up my life. And under the God of convenience, we're slaughtering our own young. So here in Genesis 22, I hope you found it, Genesis chapter 22, look at verse 1. So how does God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son if God's against child sacrifice? And it's a fair question. And supposedly a stumbling block, but many times these are not stumbling blocks. These are what we call smoke screens. So the person who asked it, where are they writing from or asking from, Walter? From uh, Mount Shasta, Pastor Carl. Mount Shasta? Yes, sir. Where's that? California. Oh, California. Okay. So um, many times these are nothing but smoke screens, and that as soon as you answer this question, 
another one pops up. And then another one, and then another one. So you have to, I would say to this woman who wrote, measure the questions carefully. Are these earnest questions, or are they just looking for an excuse not to believe? Because there comes a point where you just need to walk away until some things change in their heart. Look how the chapter opens. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now, if you have the old King James, it says God tempted Abraham. But God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. But remember, in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word for tested and tempted is identical. And in the 17th century, there was not a word for tempted. And so in the King James, you will see this word tested. And in James 1, or even in this passage. And that's okay, because context would discern what you're using. So if you're reading the Greek New Testament, it's the same word. If you're reading Hebrew, it's the same word, tested or tempted. So context, this often determines the meaning of a word. And so God doesn't tempt Abraham. He's testing him. Notice verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's an unspeakable idea. It's an incredible request. And again, those who distort the scriptures, to quote Peter, to their own destruction, will often slander God and accuse God of being hypocritical. How can this God of wisdom and love and consistency ask Abraham to do something that he had not yet codified, but it was codified certainly in the human heart because the law of God was written in the heart. Paul says in Romans 2.15 to some people who've never even seen a Bible, even though Moses hadn't codified it yet in the Torah, he comes obviously 600 years after Abraham. How could God nonetheless in his word sanction this? And so how do you deal with that? Well, a a couple of thoughts. One, certainly it's abhorrent for any of us to think about giving one of our sons or daughters to God in sacrifice. But does that mean in every situation it's wrong? Well, number one, God stopped him. But number two, beyond that, Let me simply remind you that God made a promise to Abraham that in Hebrews 11 and in James chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 4, God said he believed the promise without wavering. That this boy whom he was going to, really not a boy, a young man, the Mishnah says he was 36, I don't know, but I do know looking at the chronology of Genesis, he was not like a little boy as you see in the uh, coloring books sometimes in a Sunday school class. He's about at minimum 20 years of age. And his daddy is an old man and Isaac could easily have overpowered him, obviously. Nonetheless, Abraham believes that God is going to raise him from the dead. In verse uh, 3 here, notice the pronoun. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then verse 4, on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, 
and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. In fact, the word we appears twice in the Hebrew text. We will worship, we will return. How are we going to return? Because he believes with all his heart that God is going to raise this boy up. So this is one, not child sacrifice in the traditional sense. Number two is not being done to some pagan god, which Paul will say in 1 Corinthians is no god at all. 1 Corinthians 8, he says, you know, idols, they're nothing but stone and wood and glass and gold and silver. They're not a god at all. But then in two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 10, he'll say, but what is happening and working behind idols that people worship are demons. Demons are at work. And you'd expect that, right? Because the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. And so God intervenes supernaturally. He stops what is about to happen. And so number one, he stops. But two, remember that what God asks Abraham to do God did. God did with his own son. And of course, one of the reasons God asked Abraham to do this is for, for prophetic reasons. Abraham, the writer of the Hebrews in the 11th chapter, tells us was a type. He was a picture. A type is an Old Testament picture of what God is going to do in the future. And as you read through this chapter, it becomes obvious through all the typology, where, where is this supposed to be done? On Mount Moriah, the mountains of Moriah. Where was the temple built? On the mountains of Moriah. Why did they, why did they build a temple on Mount Moriah? Well, God made it clear to David where it was that he was to sacrifice on behalf of the people to stop the plague. And then when Solomon comes around, God specifically says, on the spot that your daddy, David, offered that sacrifice, that's where I want you to build the temple. So the first temple is built there. The second temple is built there. And if you had a little GPS instrument that could measure altitude, the very peak of Moriah is Golgotha where Jesus dies. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre isn't even on Mount Moriah, where the Roman Catholic Church says that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. And, of course, Helena, Constantine's mother, has this liver-quiver experience and says, oh, it must have happened here. God, whenever he sets a type, he always perfectly fulfills it in every way whether it's one ark with three floors and one door, one God, Father, Son, Spirit, one door of entrance into salvation, whatever the type is, God always perfectly fulfills it. And so on the Mount of Moriah, God is going to offer his son. And of course, Abraham puts on Isaac's back what? Wood. So again, he's not a little boy. He's a strapping young man who can carry wood on his back up to Mount Moriah. And of course, he looks around, okay, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the offering? And God said, I'll supply the offering. And of course, could Isaac have overpowered his dad? Of course he could have. Could have punched him in the nose and Abraham would be knocked out. Sometimes we speak of the faith of Abraham, but let's not forget the faith of Isaac. Remember, he's a picture of Christ, according to Hebrews 11. 
And Jesus said, no one will take my life from me. I will give it. I lay it down by my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. And Isaac pictures that. And of course, in Hebrews 11, it says he considered uh, Isaac as one who would be raised from the dead. And that's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus. We'll be back in three days, he tells his servants. And on the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. No wonder Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and believed. So God allowed this to happen. As a dress rehearsal, I suppose you could say, for what he was going to actually do centuries later on Golgotha, or what the Latin says, Calvary. All right, let's go to another question. I took too long on that, but that's all right. Let's keep going. Our next question comes from Elaine out of Middletown, New York. She writes, many years ago, I used to watch Joyce Meyer, and at the time, I purchased her Everyday Life Bible, the Amplified Version. I now know what kind of gospel she preaches, and I want no part of her whatsoever. My question to you is, how do I dispose of the Bible? Because it has God's word in it, and I do not want to just throw it away, nor do I want to give it away to anyone because of her false teachings. Well, we read in the opening prayer how the Lord of the law of the Lord is perfect and so forth, his precepts and his commandments, more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than that of the honeycomb. So how do we dispose of a Bible? That's a great question. We are not people who worship the Bible. We worship the living God. Bibliology is the study of the Bible. But just as there are idols, sometimes people, I suppose, could idolize the Bible, and they think that somehow we worship the printed page. We don't. We worship the word of God. That We worship God who gave us the printed word because it reveals himself. Now, I will say, every Bible I have ever had, I've never thrown one away. <laughs> Would it be wrong for me to dispose of my Bible? Certainly not. Uh, some of my Bibles, like the very first Bible I ever received as a new Christian when I was 18, I just wore that thing out and I sent it off to a um, place where they, you know, resurfaced the whole thing and a bookbinding company. And it's a special Bible to me. What do the Jews do with Scripture? They don't burn them. In fact, in every synagogue, they have a depository. It's a Hebrew word that means storage. And they store old, worn-out manuscripts in that depository. And every so many, typically, decades, they take all the Scripture and they bury it. When I communicate with my friend in Jerusalem, when he writes me, he always cites the name of God, G-D. He doesn't write it out. Whatever, whatever title of God doesn't write it out. Why? Because in the mind of a Jew, and rightly so, the name of God is so sacred, something I think that we've lost. They think, well, if this is God's holy name, we don't want that to be destroyed in an illegitimate fashion. So even in letters, it's G-D with the O missing. Or, and there's a number of other examples I could give with that. 
And so they ultimately bury the scripture. But I think there's a number of things. You could certainly rebind it. You could certainly give it as an heirloom. There are a couple of national Christian ministries that you could send those Bibles off to, and they actually uh, rebind them and then give them to people who can use them. Uh, there was a time here, uh, he hasn't asked in a while, we have a brother in prison ministry over in Ridgeland, and they'll say, any extra Bibles? And we'll go into that lost and found, and there's 20 Bibles that have been back there for a year, and we collect them all up, and he brings them to the prison and gives them to the men in the prison. Um, so you have a lot of options. That, you know, I, I think about the, the U.S. flag, There's a certain etiquette in dealing with it, right? You, you don't just throw it in the wastebasket. Stick it out for the trash man. Why? Because it, it represents our great nation and the sacrifice that men and women with their own blood have paid for us to be a free people. Look, if we, if we can show a certain etiquette with the flag... I think we can with the Bible. I, I just can't bring myself to taking a Bible and throwing it in the trash. I just can't. Is it a sin to no? Because we don't worship the printed page. We worship the God who gave it to us. That was a good question. All right. Um, let's take one more. All right. The next question comes from Nick out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He says, regarding selling used goods, if I purchase a product, for example costing me $1,000 new and sell it years or months later for $500, is that considered something that I should tithe on? I'm fine doing it because sometimes that's a part of my motive in the first place, but I often wonder about this. With other online sellers such as eBay now using 1099s for selling goods on the internet, it raises this question. Apparently, the present administration feels the need to tax a citizen for private sales over $600 but 100% of anything I sell has been below the purchase price. Thank you for your time and attention. All right, so we're basically talking about money that we might consider non-taxable, and there have been times where our government has not taxed yard sales, or you get a rebate on your credit card, and you get $100 back or something, and they haven't taxed that, and that's just free money, so to speak, from the government's point of view. That's probably going to change. As you know, there is an uh, executive order that was done. I don't know if it will be implemented. It was simply just a study to move us towards a um, cash-free culture. And what that would mean is you wouldn't be able to buy or sell anything except electronically or through similar means. What would that mean? That would mean if you decide to have a yard sale and if actual paper fiat cash is worthless, then they're going to tax every dime and they're going to know every single expense. I, I don't know how the government is going to deal. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I do know that there's coming a time where this economy has to implode. You cannot keep spending money into oblivion and not pay a cost, a price at some point. It's coming. 
And I don't know if they're going to inflate the money where, you know, if you have $10,000 in the bank, it's now worth $1,000. That's basically what they did in Belgium, but it was 20%. So if you had $10,000, it was worth $2,000. That's what they did in Belgium about five years ago. Or if they just decide, well, we're going to tax you to death, I, I don't know. But it's coming. But to answer your question, you can't outgive God. And so, look, if someone gives me a, a gift card for $25, you know what I do? I tithe it. What's the tithe? $2.50. I, I tithe everything God puts in my hand. I just do that. I just feel like God is generous with me. I want to be generous to him. And I know there are some Christians who think, well, tithing is simply an Old Testament ordinance that has no application for today. They're dead wrong. Why was it for 1,900 years no one believed that? Now, C.I. Schofield had a lot of good things to say, but he was wrong on that. And because he wrote a study Bible that became extremely popular, the Schofield Study Bible, he basically introduced the concept that tithing was an Old Testament practice and had no application for the people of God today. I think he was wrong. And again, as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. Not always, but as a general rule, some things have been left unstudied. But why was it that the church fathers who live after the apostles' right of giving at least 10% back to the Lord, why did the reformers all do that and preachers for centuries? Because I think that's the plain teaching of Scripture. The first one to give a tithe in Scripture, of course, is Abraham. He commences the process. He gives a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Now, whether you think Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or a type of Christ, I think the latter, based on the commentary in Hebrews, it doesn't change the fact that, in essence, he was giving back to God. And so he commenced the process. Jacob continued it. By the way, why did he give 10%? Why didn't he give 50% or 40% or 2%? Because God had obviously revealed to him. He was the father of the faithful. Where do you get faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God spoke in many portions and in many ways. And though there was no verse of Scripture that had yet been written by Moses, God had revealed his truth in a number of ways, like with Abel over the kind of sacrifices you give. So Abraham commences it, Jacob continues it, Moses commands it, as does Malachi. It's the one thing in all of Scripture that God asks you to test him on. And then Jesus, twice over in Matthew and Luke, he affirms it. He tells the Pharisees, yeah, you tithe mint and dill and all these spices, right down to the spices in your garden. But the weightier provisions of the law, you neglected justice and mercy. These things you should have, you should have tithed. But not to the exclusion of thinking, oh, I'm right with God because I tithe. And I've got these other moral issues going on in my heart. Look, there are many things that are mentioned in the New Testament that are true. I already mentioned bestiality. I mentioned, look, baptism is only found in the Gospels. The command to be baptized is not found in any of the epistles. Not one. Now, I think it's assumed, but it's commanded in the Gospels. It's illustrated through the Acts of the Apostles. But why do we baptize believers? Because God has set a standard, a picture. 
as to what his church should do. And I would say the same with tithing. So I would say to this friend, and I'm glad he's conscious of um, the monies that God has entrusted to him. And I will say in closing, this is not a 10, 90% relationship. Like 10% is God's and 90% is mine. It's all God's. And someday I will give an account for 100%. And it's not purely an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. So he says to the people of Israel, you've robbed me of the tithe. And I know the arguments, oh, the tithe wasn't 10%, but 13% and 23%, and that's nonsense. And it's that, those conclusions are made by people who don't want to tithe. Listen to my course on the theology of money, and I walk through all those passages that are used to discount tithing. But then God says, you know, bring the whole tithe and the offering. So while we start with 10%, the offering is above 10%. And that's where we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Now, I will not tell you what I give, but we have, since we've been married 42 years, increased, sometimes ever so small, but we increase. I'm not talking about the 10th. I'm talking about, okay, we went to this percentage and this percentage, and we've increased in 42 years of marriage. And sometimes I'm dumbfounded how God allows me to give what I give and still he provides. But it begins with the tithe. And so this guy, Nick, is that his name? Nick, Nick if, if God puts $500, so you bought something 10 years ago. I, I, I bought some things for a project recently and there was some wood left over and I put it on some yard sale app and some lady wanted it, and I sold it to her, and I tithed off of it, though I'd already, you know, paid for it, and that money had been tithed before. Uh, and I love doing that because people come to my house, and they're on my lawn, and they're on my property, and I'm going to witness to them about Jesus. It, it, it's, it's fair game. It's fair game. All right, we're out of time. Let's just leave it there. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we just love you and thank you. Uh, for your salvation in Christ Jesus that you've given us a new status that you've imputed, counted to us the very righteousness that the Lord Jesus has. You've sent the Spirit to live within us that we might know you from the greatest to the least. Amen.